You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. That Russian crackdown on ransomware gangs people thought they were seeing hasn't happened, at least according to the FBI. The cyber partisans take a virtual whack at President Lukashenko's government in Belarus. Operation Harvest is complicated and long-running, fishing with the promise of infrastructure funding, the criminal market for bogus vaccine cards, Johannes Ulrich from SANS on dealing with image uploads, vulnerabilities in conversion libraries, our UK correspondent Carol Terrio on deep fakes, what you need to know now, and a deferred prosecution agreement in a cyber mercenary case. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Elliot Peltzman, filling in for Dave Bittner, with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. Hope that Russian authorities were cracking down on ransomware gangs has proved to be a false dawn. FBI Deputy Director Paul Abate yesterday told the Intelligence and National Security Summit what o'clock it was. And dawn is still a long way off. The Bureau has seen no evidence of Russian cooperation or unilateral action against the cyber gangs. The record quotes Abate as saying, quote, Based on what we've seen, I would say there is no indication that the Russian government has taken action to crack down on some ransomware actors that are operating in the permissive environment that they've created there. End quote. The U.S. has requested action and cooperation, but these haven't been forthcoming. Quote, I would say that nothing's changed in that regard, the deputy director added. The temporary occultation of the R. Evil gang after some high-profile ransomware attacks were followed by some direct talk from Washington to Moscow, had raised hopes in some quarters that the U.S. had succeeded in altering Russia's toleration and encouragement of privateering in cyberspace. But that appears not to have been the case. Our evil is back, and if you take the gang at its word, they were more or less just out for a smoke, and now break time is over. The U.S. is thus mulling what to do about ransomware in particular as a matter of national policy. The director, NSA, General Paul Nakasone, told the AP that, quote, even six months ago, we probably would have said, ransomware, that's criminal activity. But if it has an impact on a nation like we've seen, then it becomes a national security issue. If it's a national security issue, then certainly we're going to surge toward it, end quote. The surge would involve, at the very least, increased attention to the problem and more of the familiar imposition of costs on the bad actors. 
While you can't shoot your way out of the problem entirely, there may be a role for more aggressive action. Bloomberg quotes the U.S. National Cyber Director Chris Inglis, also speaking at the Intelligence and National Security Summit, to the effect that, quote, There is a sense that we can perhaps fire some cyber bullets of a kind and shoot our way out of this. That will be useful in certain circumstances. If you had a clear shot at a cyber aggressor and I can take them offline, I would advise that we should do that so long as the collateral effects are acceptable. End quote. But of course, attacks against specific adversary assets in cyberspace, and with respect to ransomware, we're talking mostly about Russian assets, are unlikely to be sufficient to deter Russian leadership. Chris Inglis says, quote, There's a larger set of initiatives that have to be undertaken. Not one of those elements is going to be sufficient to take this thing out. End quote. It does, however, seem to be the case that NSA and U.S. Cyber Command are indeed contemplating a surge against ransomware in cyberspace. The Washington Post this morning reported on the fortunes of cyber partisans, a dissident hacktivist group in Belarus. The group, thought to be composed of about 15 Belarusian expatriates and believed to have the support of some dissidents within Belarus's security apparatus, has been an inveterate critic of President Lukashenko's government. The cyber partisans now claim to have obtained access to recordings of more than 5 million calls, outlining repressive measures the government instituted after last year's disputed presidential election widely believed to have been fraudulent. Evidently, the regime not only taps its own operators, but is also sufficiently leaky to have lost control of the recordings to the cyberpartisans. McAfee this morning published a study of Operation Harvest, a cyber espionage campaign the researchers believe to be operated by a Chinese threat group, either APT-27, a.k.a. Emissary Panda, or APT-41, Wicked Panda or Winty perhaps both. It's a complex and long-running effort marked by multiple privilege escalation and persistence techniques and presence in the network. The security firm Inky reports finding a new phishing campaign prompted by the recent U.S. infrastructure bill. The hoods send a bogus email purporting to be from the U.S. Department of Transportation. The fishbait says, essentially, that since a trillion bucks and change is about to flow from the government— to those savvy enough to position themselves for it, you too, recipient, should ring the bell on that gravy train. Basically, the crooks are after Microsoft credentials, and their approach is direct, simple-minded, and, alas, all too likely to persuade them unwary. The email simply says, US dot, that is, the US Department of Transportation, invites your business to submit bids for the department's projects, followed by a big blue click here button. It continues, quotes will be submitted online in the bid system after signing in. Experienced textual critics of U.S. government requests for proposals will be moved to skepticism, but those unused to government work might bite on that fish bait. As vaccine mandates are planned and brought into effect, the criminal market for bogus vaccine passports has surged, with the new policy-driven demand, security firm Checkpoint reports. The key conclusions that they reached in their study are that the criminal market for fake vaccine certificates has expanded globally to 28 countries. The most recent additions are Austria, Brazil, Latvia, Lithuania, Malta, Portugal, Singapore, Thailand, 
and the UAE. On August 10th, Checkpoint had identified about 1,000 vendors of phony certificates operating on Telegram. That number has now swollen by an order of magnitude, with more than 10,000 hoods now hawking bogus vaccine passports. Demand is driving up prices. They currently range from about 85 to 200 USD per document. Since President Biden began talking about a vaccine mandate, the value of a U.S. card has doubled from 100 to 200 USD. As a general rule, Checkpoint thinks everyone should be aware that genuine vaccination certificates aren't sold over the internet. As their report puts it, As a general statement, genuine health-related certificates are not sold over the internet. Anybody who is offering to sell such documents over the internet are clearly doing so illegally. We recommend people not engage with sellers publishing on such groups or marketplaces anywhere across the web. And insofar as it makes sense to talk about price gouging in a criminal market, dog bites man, crooks are greedy. And finally, the U.S. Department of Justice has reached a deferred prosecution agreement with three former intelligence and military personnel who provided services to the UAE that violated export and commuter abuse laws in the course of work they undertook on behalf of the UAE. Quote, On September 7th, U.S. citizens Mark Beyer, 49, and Ryan Adams, 34, and a former U.S. citizen, Daniel Garricky, 40, all former employees of the U.S. intelligence community, or the U.S. military, entered into a deferred prosecution agreement that restricts their future activities and employment and requires the payment of 1,685,000 USD in penalties to resolve a Department of Justice investigation regarding violations of U.S. export control, computer fraud, and access device fraud laws. The department filed the deferred prosecution agreement today, along with criminal information alleging that the defendants conspired to violate such laws. End quote. There are plenty of legitimate ways of doing business abroad, with not only the permission, but with the positive encouragement of U.S. law. But providing unlicensed export-controlled defense services in support of computer network exploitation and a commercial company creating, supporting, and operating systems specifically designed to allow others to access data without authorization from computers worldwide, including in the United States, would not be among them. The Emirati company that hired them was identified by the New York Times as Dark Matter. The three gentlemen who reached the agreement must pay almost 7 million USD and forego the opportunity to ever receive a security clearance. They also agreed to keep their noses clean and cooperate with investigators for the next three years. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off 
by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. In Nina Schick's book on deep fakes, she writes that the rapid rate of change has made our information ecosystem ripe for exploitation. Increasingly, bad actors ranging from the nation states to lone influencers are using this new set of circumstances to spread disinformation or information that is meant to mislead. And she says compounding this issue with the fact that we're still in the foothills of the AI revolution is going to lead to a further evolution of our information ecosystem. And that's where the idea of deep fakes come in. Where are we at with them? They became a thing a few years ago. But they keep bobbing in and out of the press as though there's something nebulous about them. I asked Javad Malik, he's a security guru at No Before, what his view on deepfakes. Here's what he had to say. I think from, from deepfakes' point of view, there's two use cases that I think we're going to see more of, which is quite frightening. One is where they're using a layered attack. And by that, I mean is where you might get a text message and to reinforce that, you'll get a, an email. And then to reinforce it, you'll see a deep fake video. I might send you a WhatsApp message saying, hey, Corral, check check out this video. And then I'll email you say, did you did you check your phone? Check that out. And then I might text you to get your notes. Right. And then because you, you're receiving the same message on multiple platforms, it becomes far more uh, believable. Mm. And you're more likely to get sucked into it. Because you're like, well, if these people believe it, then it must be true. In a layered attack, it's, it, we're going to see more use of that. The second part is really in misinformation and disinformation campaigns. The truth is kind of like on one end and complete falsehood is mm. on the other end. It's the gray area in between that a lot of people are always on the fence about. They, 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 can, they can be shifted one way or another. And and the mm. deep fakes, they're very good when they're used sparingly in small amounts, just to mix in the right amount of doubt into something to cause you to question the validity of something. 
So um, they're sneaky. Exactly. You just just the right amount. You, you're just sneaky. Exactly. That's that's the perfect term. And what it does is it's just enough to sow those seeds of doubt into it just to get you thinking, well, you know, maybe, you know, the government is doing this. Maybe the DVLA is after us like this. Maybe, you know, it, it, there's all these kinds mm -hmm. of. Uh, little things that you can do. And by that, what you create is dissent because you divide people's opinions. And the small changes or small difference of opinion can have really big impacts very quickly. And that's where deepfakes will probably be really impactful. I think he's right. I think it is the people that are in the middle that aren't strongly attached to one view or another that are probably most vulnerable in this situation. So those of us that consider ourselves in the gray area, maybe continue to exercise extra vigilance out there. This was Carol Terrio for The Cyberware. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the SANS Technology Institute and also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Um, you know, I can't help but thinking about images as being benign. And I know I, I should have shed that assumption you know, long ago, but it's still hard for me to think of something like a good old JPEG or a, or a GIF image as being anything but just what it is, just an image. But that's not the case anymore. And you wanted to share some, some work that you and your colleagues have been doing when it comes to uh, vulnerabilities in conversion libraries. What's going on here? Yeah, Dave, uh, thanks for having me again. And uh, this is really sort of one of those often overlooked things. It's actually not really new by any means, uh, but images can be code in some cases. But the main problem with images is that, first of all, there are so many formats and subformats. So you typically have to deal with dozens or so of uh, different formats and the respective uh, conversion libraries. And then images are most of the time compressed. And mm. it turns out that whenever you deal with compressed data, it becomes a little bit difficult uh, to allocate the correct amount of memory. And that's how you end up with your classic uh, buffer overflow then. And that's what often happens with these libraries. Now, where this really comes to play is if you are accepting image uploads, for example. So a lot of web applications allow customers, for example, to upload images, or you have uh, web applications where you allow, for example, PDFs to be uploaded, which uh, have uh, similar issues, maybe uh, even more so than your plain images. And you have to then display them back either to an administrator that vets these images or to other users, for example, as part of a product review or whatever feature you have on your site that does allow users to upload images. And so what's the potential problem here? Probably the most obvious problem is what if you have a malicious file uh, like a PDF? That's probably what people are most familiar with. And now an unsuspecting user is looking at the PDF and is getting exploited. Well, um, there's a way to prevent this. And hmm. uh, one common technique that... Uh, 
developers have used in the past in order uh, to prevent uh, exposing their users to malicious content is they convert those images or files. So for example, for a PDF, uh, you can convert them to PostScript. And then back to PDF, there's a special version of PDF, a PDF slash A, that avoids a lot of uh, the problems. But what you're doing then, and uh, many people are not really aware of, you're really sort of moving the problem from the user to your server. Basically, who do you want to rather have hit by malicious code? Is it your user <laughs> browsing your website or is it your server? As a developer, well, uh, let's go for the user, bud. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So it's, uh, depending on uh, who you're talking to and what day of the week it is, you might get a different answer on that, right? <laughs> Correct, yes. And so uh, that's... Uh, also, like if you want to, for example, change the resolution, change the size of an image, there is a very popular open source library called Image Magic uh, to do this with. And it had a number of issues. And, and just recently, again, uh, that uh, allowed an attacker to trigger uh, code execution on the server as the image uh, is reformatted. Hmm. So what are your recommendations here then? I mean, is this a situation where, you know, the, the software package you were just talking about, has that been updated? Has it been patched? Is, it, is this a matter of, uh, you know, trusting your third-party code? It is a little bit a matter of third-party code and trusting basically those libraries. The latest vulnerability here, which was ghost script vulnerability here in ImageMagic, I'm not 100% sure if it has been fixed yet, but it was not fixed when the vulnerability was first announced. And it's also a relatively easy to exploit vulnerability. So you always have this window and how fast can you patch all of this stuff? That's also another uh, problem mm. here. Very common mitigation technique here is really just assuming that stuff will go wrong. You know, stuff happens as so often in uh, IT. And uh, isolate the process. Uh, run the conversion in something like a Docker container, virtual machine, uh, whatever uh, works for you. Something that you can easily reset after uh, the conversion happens. So whatever exploit may have happened there is not going to leak any confidential data. It's not going to be persistent. And with that, you at least sort of limit the impact of any vulnerability like that. All right. Well, interesting stuff. Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and security leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our amazing CyberWire team is Brandon Karp, Trey Hester, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Falecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Dave Bittner, and I'm Elliot Peltzman. Thanks for listening.